0: Welcome to The Food Group, a podcast aimed at people who love to know a little more about the food that they're eating, and I don't mean what's in it, but more about how the dish they've chosen came into existence at all. What was it that made someone, not always a chef, put the ingredients together in the first place, and what made others copy them and keep it alive for sometimes centuries? First, I need to be clear that these tales are just that, tales. Whilst we've made every effort to back them up with legitimate evidence or endorsement, they are simply stories meant to entertain and be retold with even more wit and invention. Their foothold in any kind of fact is sketchy at best, and it's very likely that none of what you're about to hear ever happened. So in the last podcast, we made reference to a writer by the name of Arnold Bennett, Bennett was something of a J.K. Rowling of his day, selling vast numbers of copies of books with titles like Old Wives Tale, Anna and the Five Towns, and The Ricey Man Steps. He wrote screenplays and West End Barnstormers. He worked with Alfred Hitchcock, and his influence stretched everywhere from the Royal Court to the halls of Westminster. Bennett even turned down a knighthood for his propaganda work during World War I. However, it is his love of food and the high life that we are interested in. Having grown up in Stoke-on-Trent, he moved to London in 1888 to be a solicitor's clerk, but after winning a writing competition, he never looked back. The son of a pawnbroker with a terrible stammer was a success straight away and continued to be throughout his life, but mention of his name today draws blank faces. Until you mention the omelette, of course. The omelette that bears his name is a rich, indulgent mixture of yellow egg yolks, smoked fish and cream. It takes a little time and lots of love to prepare, but it's quite simply a classic and is known far better for military works of a man it was created for. Here's our brilliant Frenchman and top chef, Daniel Galmiche,
1: with that all important recipe for us. Yeah, it's a very classic recipe. Uh, it's still done fairly regularly, especially in breakfast uh, uh, in some of these hotels, it's still served. So if you see the, the, the haddock they were using at the time was a uh, Finan haddock because it was uh, uh, much more delicate and much more, and the name probably made, it was not kind of a noble fish, but uh, it had to be thin and haddock and it was poached and it was served uh, with a rich bechamel sauce, which reached because we added egg yolk into it. And uh, after that, you just cover the fish, you put some grated Parmesan and just finished it under the grill. And that was delightful because the haddock was slightly smoked. So hence this beautiful uh, smoky edge to it, I think.
0: Yeah omelettes themselves of course were nothing new and although they will always be considered a French dish, their origin is probably a little further east. Baked egg dishes were recorded as far back as the Middle Ages in parts of Persia and then later throughout Italy, Spain and France. The most notable recorded presence of the omelette in France was at the start of the 19th century when Emperor Napoleon's army was gathering pace after his exile and sweeping its way north en route for Paris and a rendezvous at Waterloo. One particular town, Beziers, prepared an almighty sized omelette to feed his troops in one quick meal. Napoleon was so impressed he copied this dish on various other occasions and in other towns along his journey. To this day, in fact, on Easter Sunday, the town of Beziers holds an omelette festival in Napoleon's honour. So let's jump forward a hundred years or so, and the now affluent Bennett has become something of a socialite, and spends much of his time at the Savoy Hotel. He stayed there on numerous occasions and loved to dine there too, with friends and colleagues. The memory of the great chef Escoffier's presence in the kitchen lingered on, but a new chef, Jean Vellageux, was running things with the same strongly Gallic influence. In 1902, Bennett had enjoyed some success with a book called The Grand Babylon Hotel, the story of which centred around a large and very fine old hotel. The author had modelled much of the geography and description on the Savoy itself. So when in 1930, he embarked on a more ambitious hotel project, the Imperial Palace, he intended to base the whole story on the inner workings of his favourite London haunt. The Savoy got wind of this and invited the author to stay in its rooms whilst working on the project. From his new vantage point, Bennett was able to study in great detail both the staff and the ways in which they carried out their duties, even basing the central character Rockover, Chef on Jean Voulageur, describing him as a suave and stately gentleman with an inordinately long, brown, silky moustache. Quite some look. Bennett was particularly fond of his breakfasts, and there isn't an exact date on which Verlager created the eponymous omelette, but it was almost certainly at one of these breakfast times when the weary author called for something a little more indulgent than usual. Knowing of his love of eggs and having access to some of the best smoked fish in London, Verlager worked his magic. There are records of the dish becoming a menu item from around 1930 onwards, and it's never left it since. Its fame spread as more and more diners tried its cheesy, smoky fish charms. Other hotels copied it, restaurants started to include it, and today you can settle down to enjoy one at most of the world's top hotels and restaurants. Perhaps Daniel Galmiche can shed some light on its longevity.
1: I guess it became a classic because of the number of people who loved it. It became kind of a trademark and it was made for personality at the time because he was a big writer, very famous, very well respect, respected and successful. So I guess when uh, when uh, the omelette was called uh, Omelette uh, Arnold Bennett's, straight away it become kind of um, trademark. But uh, not only that, I think when it's done properly, it's delightful. It's a little bit heavy for me for breakfast, obviously, I wouldn't have that and uh, the omelette was not rolled completely, eh? it was just uh, made with uh, the smoke ad hoc in the middle, and the omelette was not completely closed, so I guess the flavour of the smoke ad hoc, people remember that. The omelette's creator,
0: Jean Vellager, eventually moved on to a Dorchester Hotel on Park Lane and achieved more success, this time of a different kind, by showing a great ability to adapt to the wartime rationing, using the small amount of things at his disposal to maintain the hotel's very high standards. Bennett himself died in 1931 of typhoid in his flat above Baker Street Station. His book, The Imperial Palace, was not one of his bigger hits, but was highly commended for the detail in which it captured a fine hotel. Both his books and his other literary achievements have been somewhat forgotten since his death, but there are still many that consider his gritty text hugely undervalued and the Arnold Bennett Society are frequently holding events in his name. If I were a betting man though, I'd say it is for the omelette that was created in his honour and that finds itself on menus literally everywhere that remains for Staffordshire author's legacy for many centuries to come. There's no doubt that Arnold Bennett would have enjoyed his fair share of great wines during his lifetime and in these podcasts, as well as shedding some light on the creation of a few of the world's most iconic recipes, we're also attempting to put together a collection, on paper at least, of the greatest wines ever created. These could be all but extinct, or there may be one or two bottles up there. It doesn't matter. It's more an exercise in dreaming up what is effectively a wine rack of the gods. We've asked wine expert Ollie Smith to help draw up our dream team, but before we get his latest edition, we also tasked him with picking a more accessible entry, something that you should be able to get hold of a little easier, but is equally noteworthy and as interesting as any
2: of the food stories you hear in these podcasts. So what have you got, Ollie? It's English fizz. English sparkling wine. Trust me, this is going to be the best sparkling wine in the world, and you can taste it right now. Is it expensive? For what it is, reasonably. But actually, with the fluctuations in currency around the world, I think you're delving into something that looks like a pretty smart bargain, especially for the single vintages. The history of it is remarkable. You know, people say, "Oh, but champagne," you know, "is the French that invented it." And I'm not going to kind of, you know, throw, you know, dynamite too much into the cave of sparkling wine. But I will say that a lot of people think actually it was invented in England uh, by a chap called Christopher Merritt. Sparkling wine. He presented a paper in the 1660s to the Royal Society about how to make a wine brisk and sparkling. It was Admiral Manson who invented the bottle that kept the pressure of the fizz in. So there is a question mark about where it originated, that the reality is it's probably going on in a lot of places at the same time. With English sparkling wine, there's amazing wine in Cornwall. You've got Camel Valley, there's wonderful stuff in West Sussex from Whiston. You've got incredible wine uh, over in the East in Kent. You've got Gusbourne who are amazing. In Dorset, there's Furley. I mean, the, the list of them cascades out. What you should expect to find from the wines is a slightly zestier style, than you would sparkling wine from anywhere else, thanks to our slightly marginal climate, a little bit cooler, so that gives more freshness, a bit less booze than the bottle. But honestly and truly, uh, my fizz in my cellar now is about 90% English sparkling wine I've been collecting since the year 2000. What I can tell you with great truth is that they age amazingly. They just get better and better, and that's thanks to their acidity, which is like a preservative. But as it breaks down, it's like unlocking the secret. It's Gandalf at the, the doors of Moria with his Melon spell, and the moonlight just illuminates the door. That's what's happening inside those bottles. So are they made in exactly the same way as Champagne? Yes, more or less they are. First fermentation, you know, you make a white wine. Second fermentation in each individual bottle, that's what gives you the fizz. I mean, more or less, the bubbles in a bottle of sparkling wine, if it's made in the champagne method. Uh the yeast farts, really, in the nicest possible way. I <laughs> know that's very, very unappetizing. But the, the yeast feeds on the sugar, and it lets off CO2 that's dissolved in the wine, and that is what makes the bubbles. Lots and lots of them, and tiny ones. Wine that's made in different methods, for example, the tank method, like Prosecco. Bigger bubbles, slightly harsher prickle on the tongue. English sparkling wine incredible you're listening to the food group podcast where we're
0: sharing the stories behind some of the well-known dishes we see on menus all over the world today if you've got a suggestion or perhaps you disagree with the story we've put forward and have a better one then please do get in touch either through our facebook page or our website for foodgrouppodcast.com Alongside our food stories and wine choices, we also want to put together an imaginary collection of a dozen or so of the finest wines that have ever been produced. So these could just be those vintages from certain producers that the mere mention of sends wine enthusiasts into uncontrollable excitement, or perhaps they're wines that have an historic perspective or relevance. The man
2: with the job of constructing our list is wine guru, Ollie Smith. Well I've got a pluck, an iconic wine that's fit for our rack of the gods. We need a port in there. There's only one port that belongs for me, and it's Noval Nacional. 2011, so we're talking a recent vintage, which may shock. There's a million and one reasons why, though. This is a tiny vineyard. It's uh, two hectares in the Douro Valley in Portugal, 6,000 ungrafted vines that were planted, you know, we think just after 1894, when Antonio José de Silva uh, purchased Quinta de Noval. Their traditional grape varieties, Touriga Nacional, Sousao, uh, Tintoro Riche, et cetera, and these vines are ungrafted, so that means they don't sit on an American rootstock. The phylloxera bug that knackered all the vines in Europe didn't affect this one vineyard. So these are originals, that's why it's called national, because the roots are in the nation. There's no barrier. You're tasting something that is utterly historic and quite unique in Europe. So port, yes, it's fortified, it's very, very intense. Uh, You do get an awful lot of depth and spice in these wines. 2011, it's, I mean, it's just taking its toddler steps, but when I opened the bottle I tasted, Wow, I mean, first of all, fragrance. Now with port, I think a lot of people think heaviness, they think booze, and they think burny character. This was so svelte, so plump, so full of... You know, in my mind, if I'm thinking of a colour, it's violet. You know, it's literally floral and ultraviolet, things that you wouldn't think about with port. Delicate things on spectrums that really don't belong to describe characters of port. So, you know, elegant, of course, but punchy, yes, with the fruit. So the reason it belongs in our rack of the gods is because, yes, you can open it today. And it tastes great. You know, you know pluck some Stilton, you know, enjoy the wine. Personally, I'll be having it with dark chocolate, though. It just brings it alive. You could have it in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years with your grandchildren. But more than that, it will outlive us all. So when you're ageing these wines and you say you
0: mm. can open them today or tomorrow mm. or 20, 10, 20 years time, the flavour of them, yeah. I mean,
2: how different is it going to be? Radically different. So... It depends on how long you leave it, but if you leave it 10 years, a big difference. So what happens when a, particularly, like take a red wine, when a red wine ages, the color turns from iridescent purple through to a kind of garnet brick color. The flavor profile turns from primary fruit more towards mushrooms. So if you say to me, you know, I love when I'm out with the dog, my favorite thing in the world is just, you know, hedgerow stuff in the autumn, eating that, drink your wines young, you know, that, there's no brainer. But if you're somebody who says, oh, you know, my favorite thing in the world, mushrooms on toast, Worcestershire sauce, melted cheese on top. Consider aging your wine. So there's no right or wrong with these things, but yes, they travel as they get older. It's like you want a mini version of this, drink a bottle of wine over a six-hour period. It'll taste really different the first minute than it does six hours later. Make some notes, get nerdy. I swear the fun is, folks, in the strata of the vinosphere.
0: Cheers, Ollie, and we'll be putting the whole list up on our Facebook page too. So, as Great Britain is often overlooked in the world of gastronomy in favour of our larger Gallic neighbour, we wanted to make both stories in this podcast about dishes that couldn't have existed without the inspiration and influence of someone from our very own sceptred isle. And no, it's not Yorkshire pudding or roasted potatoes that I'm going to tell you about, but something sweet and involves an ingredient that most of us believe to be quintessentially English, the apple. The dish in question is apple charlotte, and it's a combination of buttery sweet baked bread and the soft, tart flesh of an English apple. Let's find out exactly how it's made
1: for my friend and brilliant chef, Daniel Galmiche. So, uh, bread, yeah, but in Britain, on an original recipe, they get rid of the crust of the bread and they use kind of a toast, sliced bread. In France, we're using the baguette of one day all, like we do for bread and butter pudding. You pan roast it in butter, always. You... um, a garnish a mould called a charlotte mould, actually, so bottom and side of it. And after that, you cook your apple and overcook with a bit of cinnamon, glass with calvados, flambe, and you put them in it and cook in the oven for about 45 minutes. Then you press it until it is completely cold, because if you don't press it, and the apple kind of now almost a puree goes through and stick to the bread. And after you turn it over and you serve with a lovely custard. And custard is another English word for creme anglaise, <laughs> or vice versa. Or is it creme anglaise? It's a custard. <laughs> now, it may surprise you
0: to know that the humble apple did not start off in England at all. Oh, don't get me wrong, apples have grown well in the south of England for many centuries. When the Romans settled here 2,000 years ago, they brought with them their knowledge of farming and introduced fruit trees of various kinds, and they used them to make a variety of things. But when they left, the trees fell into decline. It wasn't until William the Conqueror and his Norman invasion that the orchards returned. Normandy is famous for its apple cider, of course, and William was keen to fuel his occupation with as many home comforts as possible. Apples remained a big part of the English diet for the next 300 years until the plague hit Europe and decimated the population. Orchards fell into decline and the population's connection with the land was severed once again. With so many dead, it took a long time for the nation to recover and it really took the appetite of one man in particular to reintroduce the south of England to the idea of fruit growing. That man was Henry Tudor, Henry VIII, the single most controversial king in English history. You don't need me to talk you through the enormous impact Henry made on the political landscape of Europe. There are many books and podcasts on the subject should you wish to go down that route. But what we're interested in was his impact on the fruit bowls of Britain. Henry was probably the nation's first and foremost gourmand. He loved entertaining and he loved eating. You only have to look at a Holbein portrait to see that. His great hall at his home, Hampton Court, was the setting for some of the grandest banquets in the world. The aim of these was not only to satisfy the court's rather large hunger, but also to demonstrate the reach and power of his empire. Henry had a vast navy and he had explorers travelling the four corners of the world to find things to put on his dinner table. He also had a mass of staff and courtiers to help build and grow many of the delicacies and ingredients on his vast grounds and across the wider area of South East England. Henry had given his head gardener, a man by the name of Richard Harris, the task of turning part of Hampton Court's grounds into a grand and abundant fruit orchard. Using many of the seeds and cuttings collected by Henry's mariners, as well as the few indigenous trees, he began to cultivate new and more diverse species. He managed to grow many French varieties of apple as well as apricots, pears, peaches and figs. Harris began to distribute the seeds to farmers and landowners across the southeast region and soon the county of Kent and beyond was beginning to look a little more like the Garden of England once again. The kitchens and chefs at Hampton Court were equally creative. At one time, the huge kitchen of the palace was the only one in the world to boast running water and there were dozens of men and women working tirelessly producing pies and roast meats as well as dealing with the cold stores and fish. To begin with baked goods were cooked in thick watercrust pastry not intended for eating but as better and more creative chefs entered the kitchen more delicate things were made and stale bread began to be used instead of hard pastry which could be eaten alongside the filling. This kind of entertaining continued amongst the royal court for centuries following Henry's demise and it was actually in 1796 in the reign of George III that we finally get a written recipe for a bread and apple pudding. George was married to Charlotte, herself a keen gardener who loved to tend the fruit trees at her home in Kew, just down the River Thames from Hampton Court. The apple and bread dessert was often served at royal functions using her own crop, and George dedicated the recipe to her in recognition of her love of horticulture, and in particular the apple. Charlotte eventually became the patron of the Apple Growers Association, such was the strength of her passion for them. Our story could end there, but things are never that simple. For Chef Daniel Garmisch, the Charlotte recipe has a whole load of different
1: ingredients altogether. We use uh, the biscuit called boudoir in French. And this is called a charlotte? As well. Right. Because we replace the bread by, by a boudoir, which is a dry biscuit, which you dip within a syrup, uh, which is infused with some alcohol, and you let them soften, but not quite soft. Still li- remain a little bit, uh, you know, kind of um, texture into it. And you line the mould with the boudoir reverse. So the 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 side which is slightly sweet, because there's some sugar within a boudoir on the top, must be on outside. And in is a flat part of the boudoir. And after that, you build it around it, and after you put your mix inside. It's not like a charlotte, uh, necessarily apple, but we use a, a mousse or a bavarois mix as well sometimes. And within a bavarois, for example, uh, which is a, a Uh, like a panna cotta, but it's a bit more solid, so you can use a a fruit puree at the base, you can uh, uh, incorporate, for example, roasted pear with honey, which you you drop within it, Uh, and, uh, and after that you glaze it, but you don't take it upside down like you would do for a charlotte, you just take the mold and you lift it. And after that, quite often it's tied up with a bow, so it's holding the whole lot as well. So now you see there is another Charlotte pudding
0: credited to one of the biggest names in culinary history, Marie-Antoine Carême. It was more refined with those sponge fingers and that layer of fancy custard, but under the cherries were still the apples. Sounds a little too much of a coincidence to me. Karem credits his employer, Tsar Alexander I's sister-in-law, Charlotte, as his inspiration, but he does catalogue it as the slightly different Charlotte à la Parisienne, and it's very possible he came across the original whilst working in England before refining it for his own use later. The dessert is now known as Charlotte Russe, or Russian Charlotte, to avoid confusion, and both are found across Europe. Personally, I prefer the more humble bread version, but try them both and make up your own mind. Well, there goes our kitchen timer and it's time to draw a close on this edition of The Food Group podcast. For more stories in the book Who Put the Beef in Wellington by me, James Winter, do let us know what you think via our Facebook page, The Food Group or our website, thefoodgrouppodcast.com which also has more detailed information about the show and you can contact us if you're interested in sponsoring us. And make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Bye for now. The Food Group is a CM Audio production.